Welcome to You Might Hate This Book, where each episode one of us will recommend a book to the other. A book that we love that we suspect our co-host might hate. Well, hate is a strong word. How about falls outside of their traditional scope of interest. Fine, that's fair. A book they would never have chosen to read otherwise. We'll read the assigned book, then come back together to discuss. Did you love it? Or did you hate it? So you agree we might hate it. (sighs) Yeah, you might hate it. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Hannah. And you might hate this book. Welcome. Hi. How are you? I'm doing well. Oh, good. I don't have anything interesting that has happened to me lately. I got to go to work this week after many snow days. I got to go into the office this week after many work-from-home snow days. Yeah, although I hesitate to even call it snow. Down here in the south, it was it's like, oh no, a drop of freezing it water. Wasn't, it wasn't like, snow. Like, it no. was water that was too cold to drive on. I mean, it was icy for a day or two. But. Yeah. I believe the phrase is, out of an abundance of caution, we are canceling school. Out of an abundance (laughs) of caution. So, yeah, back at it. More normal week for me. So, our book this week. Oh, Caledonia. Oh, Caledonia by Elspeth Barker. Did you know? I'm curious. I'm just going to ask it now. Did you know what Caledonia was? Nope, still don't. Okay, cool. When should I tell you? Do you want to know now? Tell me now. Maybe this would be a good place to start our summary. It's another name for Scotland. I kind of got that, but also I didn't quite it get that. It doesn't tell you. Like, yeah. It, right, yeah. So let's just get that out of the I way. I did think, why is this book called that? Yes, because the main character, her name is Janet. It's not, it's not Caledonia. It's not Caledonia. That's um, another name for Scotland. It's also from a poem by a Scottish uh, writer, Sir Walter Scott. And as our summary today, I'm going to read you that stanza of the poem because I'm so I excited. think it's a good way to summarize this book. Okay. So this is stanza two from Canto Six of the Lay of the Last Minstrel by Sir Walter Scott. You just said so many words. It's just like verse and line. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> oh, Caledonia, stern and wild, meet nurse for a poetic child. Land of brown heath and shaggy wood, land of the mountain and the flood, land of my sires, what mortal hand can e'er untie the filial band that knits me to thy rugged strand? Still as I view each well-known scene, think what is now and what hath been, seems as to me of all bereft, sole friends thy woods and streams were left. And thus I love them better still, even in extremity of ill. By Yarrow's streams still let me stray, Though none should guide my feeble way, Still feel the breeze down Ettrick break, Although it chill my withered cheek. Still lay my head by Teviot stone, Though there, forgotten and alone, The bard may draw his parting groan. Do uh, you think that's an apt summary? Sure. If you know I, what's going on. It's a lot more vague, <laughs> Let me but explain. it's a poem. Yeah. So it starts with the poetic child, Which mm-hmm. is the uh, main character of our story, Janet. She is a poetic child and also a wild child, especially if you were to ask her parents. Yeah. Um, This is a story that begins with her death and moves backward through her life. Um, And she is, 
as this poem suggests, her only friend is the the nature that surrounds her right. in the Scottish Highlands where this book takes place. It takes place post-World War II. Um, she and her family move to this rather rundown castle, Ochnesoch. Ochnes- I was I wondering how I that was I'm pronounced. I'm going to go with that. The whole time. Uh, and so the book moves backward from her childhood up to the point that the prologue begins with, which is her death. Um, and she does, you know, as the poem goes on, you know, she is strained. She's making her feeble way. There's not really a good hand to guide her. And so it ends forgotten and alone. She dies. And along with that, there's an introduction to it by Maggie O'Farrell. Have you ever read anything? I don't think so. She wrote Hamnet. No, I have uh, heard which is of one that. of her more recent ones that has gotten a lot of attention. So she wrote the introduction um, to this version. And it starts out with Janet's murder. Um, she's lying in a pool of blood, very, you know, descriptive scene. There's a stained glass window that is shining onto her with the family motto, dying but unconquered. Um, she's lying there. And so I think this is also a good summation of what's happening in this story that Maggie O'Farrell provides. Despite this opening, O Caledonia is not a whodunit. Do not expect a tense search for a criminal. What you are holding in your hands isn't an investigation of who killed this unfortunate girl. Elspeth Barker is too deft and subtle for that. It's an account of Janet's life from birth to early death, taking in sibling bonds and betrayals, parental intolerance, the horrors and discomforts of adolescence, and the saving grace of books. The world you are about to enter is one of prickly tweed coats, of grimly strict nannies, of irritatingly perfect younger sisters, of eccentric household pets, of enormous freezing castles. It is one where girls are considered to be merely, quote, an inferior form of boy, quote, and Calvinist propriety is thrown into relief by the seductive wildness of the Highland landscape. I'm going to thank Sir Walter Scott and Maggie O'Farrell for our summary. <laughs> that is the summary. Time. That's all the summary you're getting. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to turn it over to you, Steph. What do you think that I rated this book? Um, I don't know. It's another dive into literary fiction, I think, and we've done that before. Oh, I'm going to hope for three, but I'm going to say maybe two, two and a half. I gave it a three and a half, which is my highest rating so far. Okay. All right. For me, it was more than this is pancakes, but it wasn't quite, ooh, pancakes. It was like just in between. Like I was almost super excited about it. Right. But I was more than indifferent to it. Okay. Well, that's, that's as much as I could hope for. Yeah. (laughs) I, I liked it. I mean, a a three and a half on our pancake scale is, is liking it. It's good. Yeah. Um, so this is definitely an instance where knowing what I was getting into helped the medicine go down. I think if I had not mm. read the introduction, you didn't specify whether or not I should read the introduction. That's right. I was going to ask you. But you had me read parts of the introduction for... The Coquette. The Coquette. And I was mm-hmm. like, you know what? Is a short introduction. Might as well. So I read it and it was very clear. It is not a whodunit. Right. Don't expect one just because the opening page has a murder on it. And I was like, okay, I don't know what I'm getting into, but I know what I'm not getting into. Right. And I might have been confused with a murder on the first page and been waiting for something that I wasn't going to get and then been more disappointed. I knew before I started what I was not going to receive and was therefore not disappointed. That's really interesting because I have this like love-hate relationship with introductions. Yeah. And you can... There can be some really good information in them, but I tend to skip them and read them when I'm finished with a book. Yeah, and it helps you digest what you already have read. I'm glad that I read this one first. 
yeah, the fact that it was going to be more of a character study and right. for what it is, not what it, I could have hoped it would be if I had not read the introduction, for what it is, which I called a piece of gothic literature. We talked earlier mm -hmm. in the week and you said you might not categorize it exactly like that. I think um, it dabbles in different genres and that right. one is certainly present. Yes. Yeah. For me, it rang very gothic. I'm not an English, sure, you know, whatever. No. Um, if that's what you're most familiar with going into it, then those parts are going to stand out to you yes. a lot more clearly. Yeah. So for what it is, a piece of gothic literature that deals with one adolescent character, I think it's solid and good. Cool. Will everyone want to read that? Maybe not. But Fair if enough. that's something you want to read, I think it's a good one. Did you feel like when you knew that, were you excited to go into it or were you like, okay... I like character-driven, okay. I usually read more contemporary character-driven stuff, right. but, like, a lot of the contemporary fiction I read is not pacey and, like, necessarily genre. Right. Um. So I'm fine with diving into a character. It just depends cool. on whether or not it's going to be done well. Yeah, that was the thing I was wondering if you'd be the most um, disappointed with was the ending specifically. Well, for me, this was very much... It had a similar feel to Weinsberg in that I felt like the author was trying to do something more than tell a story. Okay. But I liked what they were doing and liked how they did it significantly better. Okay. It's like two people trying to do the same thing, but I like how you did it and I did not like right. how the other one did it. But for That me, makes sense. For me, this rang very gothic. That's what stood out to me. Yeah. And I... Totally had, fair. I had obviously, like, heard of gothic literature you know, before, but it wasn't until pretty recently that I understood what that meant. Because, like, gothic, I don't know, I grew, up in, the, use that I grew up in the early aughts, like, yeah. <laughs> it means something else, like, black nail polish right. and... <laughs> the kid with all the bracelets and the eyeliner yeah, like, and, yeah. Black rubber bracelets, yeah. Mm, angst. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Suburban sure. teenage angst. <laughs> this book was just like that. <laughs> well, it does have some teenage angst. It does. But I was listening to a couple years ago, I think it was during quarantine, I was listening to the podcast Witch Please, which is a podcast about Harry Potter that studies the Harry Potter books through different literary, um, oh. like, theories. So they That's study fun. Harry Potter through, like, feminist theory and critical race theory and through the lens of gothic literature and through all this stuff. And mm -hmm. it is really interesting. And it's very, like, you know, it's not just a fangirl podcast. It's very critical. They're both... Oh. English That's cool. Scholars. I may check that out. Yeah, so which please, if you want to go look in that. And on the episode where they talked about gothic literature, they played a game called Gothic or Not, where they list things from the Harry Potter books, and the other person has to say whether or not they think those things are gothic or not. Oh, and that's fun. That really helped me understand what gothic is in the context of literature was, because I didn't really know before. Sure, and that so, makes like, sense. I'm... You might take for granted that everyone knows. I'm going to assume that some of you guys are like me. And you're yep. just like, I know what gothic means in, like, middle school, but what does it mean in literature? I don't know. So we're going to play gothic or not. Yay! I'm so excited! <laughs> I'm going to list off things from this book. Okay. And just say whether or not you think oh, they're so gothic Oh, so it's not. not Harry Potter. You made up your own thing from this book. This is from O Caledonia. Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah. Okay. I want your gut reaction, but if you need to explain anything, feel free. So I'm just saying gothic or not. Yeah. Okay. Unless okay. you have more to say I'm going to go with my gut. Okay. Gothic or not. Pianos. Gothic. Myrtle the turtle. 
not i don't remember myrtle the turtle <laughs> it's a song that she's learning oh um, i guess not <laughs> a dollhouse gothic vomit uh, this is harder than i thought <laughs> <laughs> you, there's not like necessarily right answers oh well i'm a teacher i need we're we're I'm gonna we're gonna talk okay. more about what gothic means later so we can discuss whether or not i'm gonna say not to the vomit okay a gray knitted donkey not tweed gothic <laughs> the bible gothic poisonous vines gothic window panes gothic the moon uh gothic a jackdaw named claws i feel like i'm starting okay <laughs> some of these have to be not right? <laughs> um i didn't put them in a very i just put them in a random order the okay her jackdaw it's her pet bird mm-hmm gothic eczema <laughs> 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 Old lipstick. Not. Mushrooms. Gothic. A piece of coal. Um, n- not. A purple dress. Gothic. Cacti. Not. Insane asylums. Gothic. Cliff sides. Gothic. Boarding school. Gothic. Dead trees. Gothic. Me in high school. You in high school. <laughs> you in high school. I was not in this book. <laughs> I was so in the zone. You're like, wait, what? I was not gothic by an... I was angsty, but I was not proper gothic. Yeah, that was not my angst either. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was fun. Okay. So tell me my results. <laughs> I I mean, I think some of these are up for interpretation. Sure. And some of them are gothic when the, within the context of this book. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. Pianos, are they inherently gothic? But an old, decrepit, out-of-tune piano in a cold castle, that's a gothic right. piano. I will tell you, And when you were saying these things in my head, I was thinking, is this something that features in an Edgar Allan Poe story? Yeah. <laughs> if it yeah. is, I'm going to say gothic. <laughs> and, like, vomit. I would not necessarily say gothic, except that part of gothic literature is, like, nasty descriptions of stuff sometimes. Yes. And so in this case, I kind of think her vomit is gothic. Okay. I can buy that. Right. So the the disturbing, the yeah. weird, the visceral that makes you kind of quivery. Yeah. Right. And so I also looked up just like, what are the things that make literature gothic? Is there a yes. list? Yes, there is a list. Go. One, a setting in a castle, perhaps abandoned or left in disrepair. Yes. With secret rooms and dark staircases. Yes. Does this have that? Check. Yep. <laughs> Number two, an atmosphere of mystery and suspense. The work is pervaded by a threatening feeling, um, something enhanced by the unknown. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't call it super suspenseful, but it begins with a murder, and then you go back. So the whole time you're wondering, how did she get murdered? Yeah, so, I think, um, yeah, that's one of the areas she plays with it a little bit. It's not as overt. Yeah. Like, when O'Farrell says she's subtle, that's one of the ways she's This was subtle. one where I was like, yes, but also no. Right. Number three, an ancient prophecy connected to the castle or its inhabitants. This was also a yes or no, um, because one of the things that was listed as, like, an example of a prophecy is, like, oh, there's an old ghost who... Yes, the supernatural. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and there is a story at the beginning about a woman who dies in in a green dress, and she, like, people have stories, but it's not really, like... It's, it's not like, a haunted house story. It's like any old house that's yeah. been around a while. Yeah. You're so that was stories. also like a, eh, in between. Yep. Number four, omens, portents, or visions. Janet does have a vision. She yes. calls it a vision. So yes. check. 
supernatural or otherwise inexplicable events. I don't feel that there was anything supernatural, but we do have like window tapping and footsteps that I think get an explanation in the end, but as they're happening, they're quote unquote inexplicable. I think, I think Barker does a lot to evoke the feeling of Gothic literature without doing it overtly. Yeah. Without being downright. Like there's not a literal ghost, Mm -hmm. but you have that ghostly feeling. Right. Number six, high, even overwrought emotion. Check. Oh, yes. Check. <laughs> Everything Janet says. Everything. I <laughs> I pulled a quote. Um, at one point in time, she stated that she wanted her mother to prompt her into something because she had been dying to quote Nina from the Seagull to her mother and claim that she was in mourning for her life. And I was like, yes. oh, my goodness. A girl who's just like, say it, mom. Say something to me where I can quote to you. Yes. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Seagull, is that correct, or is it Seagull? Seagull, to check off. Okay. Yeah. It's not spelled like... Any visuals. any kid that wants to quote a Russian playwright to their yeah. parents, yeah. come on. She has feelings. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Number seven, women in distress. Female characters often face events that leave them fainting, terrified, screaming, or sobbing. A lonely, pensive, abandoned, and oppressed heroine is often the central figure. I would say yes and no to this. Like yes, she, there's not like screaming and you know whatever. Someone does faint. She does vomit. She's lonely, pensive, and abandoned. Yes, but she's also strong and independent because mm-hmm. of her neglect. I also think we should consider there's another character, um, her cousin Lila. Lila. Mm-hmm. Number eight: women threatened by powerful, impulsive, tyrannical men. Check. Yep. Janet is sexually assaulted on three occasions. Yep. I thought it was interesting how clearly it was painted that she is not attractive physically or in her personality, and yet still. So those two things are not connected. Yes, no. That out. Um, she was not putting it out there. No. <laughs> uh, in any way. Uh, nine. I don't know how to pronounce this word, and it looks like it's meton- metonymy? Metonymy. Metonymy. Yes, you're right. I've never heard of this before. The Metonymy of Gloom and Horror. And I didn't know what this was until I read it, so you guys might not either. Metonymy is a subtype of metaphor in which something like rain is used to stand in for something else, like sorrow. So, for example, when there's a funeral scene in a movie, it's always raining and they have black umbrellas. And rain is this metaphor for sorrow. It's kind of like synecdoche, which is similar where, like, you use an object to represent, like, if you say the crown, you mean the queen and her Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Um, so, like, wind, especially howling wind, uh, doors on rusty hinges, rain, especially, like, billowing rain, howls, eerie footsteps, things like that. And this this has those, for oh, sure. Yes. Once I learned more about gothicness, I got more interested in this book. Okay, I would cool. agree that it's not it's not overt and it doesn't check all the boxes, but it made it interesting to me. Well, and I think it does a cool thing, and this is why I think she's very masterful with her writing. Like, some of those things were like, eh, I'm not sure, but there were a couple that were like, definitely yes. And I think when we've talked about genre before, you know, when you have genre expectations and you go into a book, you're going to determine whether or not it's, quote, good, Mm -hmm. depending on how it meets those expectations. And we consider things good if it bends it in a new way, but then if it breaks it entirely... Then it's bad. So, like, the genre metaphor I've always heard is like you want a chocolate chip cookie. So, you go to a bakery and you order a chocolate chip cookie. 
if you get a plain chocolate chip cookie that is like the Toll House recipe on the you're gonna be right. like I paid three dollars for this cookie. It's what you asked for. It is, but... but it's kind of a disappointment. Or you get this like capital C chocolate chip cookie and it's got like an ingredient that you can't figure out what it is and you're like it's got like chips and chunks of chocolate it's like it's got this special thing about it and you're like this is a chocolate chip cookie which is what I asked for but like with a twist if you ask for a chocolate chip cookie and you get a taco even if (laughs) (laughs) even if tacos are your favorite food that would be a failure. Yeah. Or even another cookie. Like yeah, a sugar like, cookie, I would be upset. Yeah, like I asked you for a chocolate chip cookie. Right. So like something can be good. Like I like eating tacos, but I asked you for a cookie. Right. So this is a failure. It's like we want we want authors to bend the genre expectations in a way that's new and refreshing. But, but you the, can't just break it. Yeah, you, you, there still has to be enough that you expect where, like, the pattern recognition in your brain takes over and you can assimilate the newness yeah. with the old things yeah. and it all becomes clear. If I have nothing to assimilate or recognize, yeah. I'm adrift and yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, cool. Thanks so did you have more to say on genre? Well, you know, I, I knew you were going to talk about it. I think you pretty much covered it. I did... Um, I have to share this. So the high school I used to teach at, we adopted a new textbook a couple years ago. And the very first unit in the textbook started out with gothic literature. So I've taught it many times to 10th graders in high school. And the unit, the first unit in this book. So like, hey, kids, welcome to 10th grade English. The unit is called Inside the Nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to hell. Yeah, that's basically what I felt like. I used this book for two years before I switched jobs, and it was like, hello, class. This is August. We're going to all get to know each other inside the nightmare. (laughs) It started with the fall of the House of Usher, which also is not the most accessible Poe story, but whatever. (laughs) I had some issues. But yeah, I actually pulled an old worksheet (laughs) that I had my students do, and I filled it out for O Caledonia. Like, yes, got the literature. So you covered most of these. Bleak setting, mm-hmm. yep. tortured characters, strange or violent plot, mm-hmm. dramatic description, gloomy mood, and recurring symbolism. That yes. meant metonymy. So I think you covered it right. really well. So there were a couple of instances that um, felt gothic to me, but not in like a really expected way, but in a way that kind of twisted that, that like made me not laugh, but I would just want like, huh. Yeah. And I liked them, so I took note of them. So A smirk, you know. Yeah, so I'm going to read a couple of these. Okay, great. So this is when talking about her cousin Lila, who's an outcast. She's strange. Yes. Should we describe a little bit about her? Sure. Her, her family, they don't start out living in this castle. They move there when Janet's a little bit older. Um, but part of moving there is they have to also take in her cousin Lila, who already lives there. And when I say cousin, she's a much older. Like, yeah. think of her more as a great aunt. Yeah. And she's very eccentric and lives in, like, her little part of the castle. And Janet's mom is not excited no. to take this on at all. Um, but there she is. Um, Russian immigrant? I think so, yeah. Yes. So Lila's weird. The kids Super. would... You know, make fun of her or whatever. So it says, At first the children would shriek with terror as she materialized soundlessly behind them in the corridors or out of the dripping winter afternoon, but soon they grew used to her. And as time passed, Janet, who had taken to reading Edwardian books about isolated, misunderstood young girls whose intelligence and courage were noticed only by one adult friend, decided that Lila was fitted for this part. Her only regret was that neither of them was crippled. I love this so much! <laughs> this is why I love this book. <laughs> That highlights the way in which this is leaning into gothic, but 
not super overtly. Right, and it's more... I don't want to call it modern gothic because that actually is its own thing too, but it's like bringing it into a contemporary setting. Because another thing about gothic literature is it's usually set way in the past. Right. Even when it was being written in the 1800s, they would set it in like the 1200s. Yeah. This is not like that. Okay, so this one reminded me of you because we've always... (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, We've always joked that, you know... Absent Brandon, you would be living alone in a tower with a bunch of cats and books. Wait, is this like page 74? It's page 74. Oh, I was going to read this, too. <laughs> Where do you want me to start? I, I don't I don't care. You just go. Okay. This is when Janet's hitting puberty, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's, like, learning about sex, and she was like, I'm not yeah, sure that's she, for me. She wishes her boobs would be spikes <laughs> so that the boys would, when they hit her, because she goes to an all-boy prep school that her dad runs. <laughs> when they kept hitting her, and she's like, I just wish they were spikes. Right. <laughs> yes. So she talks about how, like, she knew how animals did it, but she had kind of thought people were different. I love this passage. Go ahead. <laughs> yep. Okay. But she had assumed that people were different, metaphysical. After all, there had been an angel Gabriel. No wonder God had driven Adam and Eve out of paradise. What a disgrace. It was lucky she had never had any intention of having babies. Now she would certainly never marry either. She would live at her days at Ashenaw, a bookish spinster attended by cats and parrots, until that time when she might become ethereal. Pure spirit, untainted by the woes of flesh, a phantom drifting with the winds. What fun she would have as a ghost. She could hardly wait. I love, <laughs> <laughs> I love that you were going to read this passage. I, that's one... I had to when I was reading this. I had to read multiple parts out loud to Brandon. I was like, I'm yeah. so bad about that to him. He probably gets annoyed, but I'll be like, Oh, listen to this. You have. And I do that too. I was like, What if this was our child's reaction to learning the facts of life? Like, oh, how undignified. <laughs> I'm just gonna be a ghost. <laughs> I love that. That's the reaction. Not just like I'll be single, but like people are undignified. I'd like to be ethereal. I would like to be spirit. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> This bag of flesh I'm in, not for me. (laughs) (laughs) Unless my boobs can be spikes. Right. To punish the boys that hurt me on the playground. (laughs) Right. I love that. Okay, we have one more. This one is to highlight Lila. Oh, yeah. And one of the things about gothic literature is, like, unsettling descriptions of stuff. Yes. So this is a deeply unsettling description of food. Allow me to enlighten you. Go ahead. Lila said that she was hungry. They went to her room and Janet watched her prepare a frugal meal. First, she chopped a wizened tomato on the cover of a handy book. Then she removed a grimy tub of cottage cheese from the mantelpiece. She put a blob of this on the palm of her hand and added the tomato. Then she wandered about the room, daintily eating it with her fingers and dripping tomato pips and squelching gobules onto the floor. She never sat down to eat. She said she found it a boring waste of time. Uh, I remember that. Like, if you have a tomato slice and cottage cheese, why would you not put the tomato and then the cottage cheese? But she put the cottage cheese in her palm and then stuck a tomato on it and then ate it with her fingers. Why is the cottage cheese on the mantelpiece? Does it not have to be refrigerated? Well, and because it is, like, you and I are thinking of the cottage cheese we buy in, like, the daisy containers. Like, this, this cottage cheese might be more solid than you're thinking. I, I, I don't want to think about yep. it at all. I read that and I was like, I'm never, I'm never. Gonna. Yes, her entire existence is rather unsettling. Lila collects mushrooms and just sits in her room surrounded by mushrooms. Drinking whiskey. Yeah. With her decrepit cat. 
Right. Mouflon. <laughs> yeah, I would think so after weird. Janet, I would say Lila is like the second most important character. Yeah. In this story. Those were good passages. Thank hey, you. Yeah. Um, so while this book was not particularly plot driven. No. I was really interested in continuing to read it. And unlike when I wanted to keep reading um, Murakami, it was because I wanted an answer. I was like, I'm going to turn the next page because I want an answer. This one, I was never expecting an answer, um, but I was still really interested to keep reading it. I actually set aside time. I left my house and went to Besso's, our local coffee shop, and so that I could finish it. I only had like 60 pages left, and I was like, I just want to finish this, and I don't want a three-year-old like taking it out of my hand. I relate to that. I went and read it, and I wasn't expecting an explanation for Janet's murder, and I was still that engaged. So for me, you know, that's a good thing. And I'm a lover of genre fiction, so I need to be pretty engaged. My best explanation is that I identified with or at least sympathized with Janet. Sure. Um, At the very end, she is listening to music, praying to the moon, and casting a love spell to attract a boy that she barely knows but is obsessed with. Yes. Do you know anyone like that? <laughs> Let me think back to my freshman year in college. <laughs> um, so that's a lot like 17-year-old and 19-year-old um, Stephanie and, you know, probably... 32. You weren't that bad by college. I, I mean, <laughs> by college. <laughs> I love the caveat. Well, I didn't know you before. Right? Um, so here's a, a true story about me. When I was 17, I cut a hole in the screen of my window so that I could go out onto the roof and look at the moon and write poetry when I felt sad, (sighs) mostly about being misunderstood and unrequited love. My mom found the cut in the screen and she thought I was like sneaking out to meet boys and have sex. And I was like, ew, no, I'm writing sad poetry while (laughs) sitting underneath the moon. Um... That sounds very much like somebody that would hang out with those four boys from The Sense of an Ending. <laughs> felt like things were philosophically self-evident. Uh, I could have easily gone that direction. Yes. Um, yeah. Although more, more witchy. More, more witchy. Know. When she was doing that at the end, I was like, okay, girl, I see you. Yeah. <laughs> and she meets this boy Janet. once and becomes so obsessed with him, which is a thing that I may or may not have done multiple times in the course of my life. Yeah. But she still wasn't over her, like, facts of life are gross. It was a very, um, yeah. like, mental yeah. attraction. Something I didn't like. Yes. At the same time that we deal only with Janet, I also felt like we didn't quite get to know her in some ways. Like, it felt kind of shallow. If this had been genre fiction, I would say that it was a little unbelievable how badly oppressed Janet was by everyone. In genre fiction, it's supposed to be relatable characters that are pretty Mm -hmm. true to life. And, like, this girl's mother outright hates her from the beginning, seemingly for no reason, even though she continues to have other kids who she apparently does like. And... Her dad's, like, mostly not even in the picture. She doesn't have any friends because she likes reading books and is not very pretty. Like, does everyone who reads books and isn't prom queen not have friends? Like, yeah, that... I, I mean, I think you bring up a good point because even with literary fiction, it's usually very realistic characters. Yeah. And she, she does, I think you're right, border on caricature. Yeah. A little bit. Like, there are some things where I'm like, definitely this is you know, a teenager can feel oppressed in this way. But I was like, literally no one on earth likes this girl. No one. Mm -hmm. Even the other outcast at her school doesn't like her. Even Lila doesn't like her. Like, 
the crazy old lady who you would think would be like, ah, I identify with you, sad, lonely girl. She, like, reaches out to Lila to try and, like, befriend her, and Lila does not care about her. She visits Lila when she's sent to an insane asylum, and that just broke my heart. I was like, even the other person who's, like, ready-made to, right. be, like, at least be a confidant or something. Well, that's interesting. No. I remember th- Lila didn't like her because didn't Lila blame her for why she got sent away? Yeah, but she didn't like her before that, too. Okay, okay. Like, I mean... Lila just wanted to be left alone. Yeah, like, Lila tolerated her and then pretty quickly with absolutely no grace, she makes a mistake and she's like, now I absolutely hate you. Right. So, but yeah, like, Lila was not a friend even before that moment. But yeah, I know what you're talking about. Gotcha. So, in spite of the whole book being about Janet... There were times where I was like, I don't feel like I even know this person. So that was like a... That's fair. That took it down a star for me. One of the first things I noticed was the incredibly flowery prose. Yes. And I happen to be a lover of purple prose. Yes. And in this book, where the whole point essentially is the atmosphere, like, Janet's the character, but I would also say that Scotland is the character. Yes, it's named after Scotland. Yeah, like... The thing that gets the most description isn't Janet and how she looks and how she feels or whatever. The biggest descriptions are spent on the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And we talked about, like, long descriptions of mundane things with Weinsberg. Yes. And I don't mind long descriptions of mundane things when the descriptions are not also mundane. Right. <laughs> like, her descriptions were beautiful and made the mundane seem elevated. Yes. Yeah, so I love that when something is phrased in an interesting yet still accurate way. Like, some people can try to be so flowery that I'm like, now your metaphor doesn't even make sense. Like, you you took the language to a point where you're not making your point anymore. So when something is, like, described in a really interesting way, but you don't take it past breaking it, that's, like, the sweet spot. And I felt like she did that really well. Uh, I agree. Do you have an example that you want to I don't. I have one, if you don't mind me sharing, since you're talking about it. Yeah. Um, But it is a description of the sea. Janet's hatred of the sea is explained thus. There was so much of it. Flowing, counterflowing, entering other seas, slyly furthering its interests beyond the mind's reckoning. No wonder it could pass itself off as sky. It was infinite. A voracious marine confederacy. (laughs) I remember that one. Like, I'm slightly offended by the sea. (laughs) The sea. (laughs) Just the sea. Allow me to tell you why. (laughs) Also, she calls her cats subjunctives. Yeah, I thought of you with that, too. (laughs) Yes, because subjunctive, you know, is subtle, like cats. Yes. I was thinking on the way to work today, I was like, what does she call the cat? And then the only, like, literary term I could think of was participle. And I was like, I know that's not right, but I also kind of want to name a cat participle. (laughs) You have, like, a whole litter of all these grammatically named cats. We can have subjunctive and participle if Kyle ever lets me have a cat. We do, in fact, find out who murdered Janet. Yes. And I was disappointed with how random that seemed to me. I expected you to be, yes. I thought that I had figured out about 75% of the way through how Mm -hmm. this murder occurred. Oh, really? Because it's described that she's, like, inexplicably wearing her mother's black, like, dressing. Evening gown. Evening gown. And she's murdered at the, like, she's at the bottom of the stairs, She Mm -hmm. has, like, fallen down the stairs in her mother's dress. When Janet's mother, Vera, who hates Lila. Right. (laughs) Who hates crazy old lady Lila, um, at some point in time is being, like, really antagonistic toward Lila. And 
Lila is getting fed up with it and Vera, Janet's mother, is coming up the stairs in that black evening dress and Lila jumps out and attacks her. Oh, and, yeah. Um, after that, she's sent to the insane asylum. And I predicted that she would be released from or escape from or whatever from the insane asylum. And then the night of Janet's murder, her entire family goes out of town and she's the only one there. And I predicted that Lila would just see the dress and be like, this is Vera and jump out and attack Janet and accidentally murder her. And frankly, my way is more interesting. I was going to say that is more interesting than what happens. (laughs) Yeah. So I was really disappointed when I was like, oh, man. Yeah. I wrote the end of this book better. We won't give it away. But it's like literally in the last three paragraphs. Yeah. Which is fine. If it had been a good explanation in the last three paragraphs, I I felt like it didn't make sense. I didn't understand why this person had the need right. to kill Janet. And I was just like, okay. Well, it definitely seemed thrown away. Almost yeah. because, like, at this point it's inconsequential yeah. how she died. So I'm, Which I was surprised I even got an answer at all. I wasn't expecting one. I think by that, I don't think I clued into the black dress that you did because I just, it wasn't even on my radar. I was just not even reading for that. Right. At I that mean, point. because I went in with the expectation I had, I wasn't expecting an answer at all. Um, So when I was like, oh, they're about to tell me. And then I was like, okay, my guess was better than the real thing. So would you have liked it better if she just had left it unsolved? I'd rather have an unsolved mystery than a mystery that's solved badly. I think that's fair. Yeah. So that's why we're at three and a half. I obviously was really engaged with it and I really liked parts of it. But there were things where I was like, "Uh uh-uh, that doesn't work. You can't do that. I see that. Overall, though, because I'm a genre fiction reader, I don't really base whether or not I like a book based on like how it concludes or something. My reading experience is what I base it off of. Did I enjoy reading this? Was I engaged with it? So even if the ending is like disappointing, that doesn't ruin the fact that I spent this many hours being entertained. Other things factor in and something can ruin it at the end, you know, even if I had a good experience, but that's probably what gets like the most weight Mm -hmm. When I'm judging whether or not I like something. So even though there were things where I was like, okay, no, I enjoyed my experience enough. So that's why it got the rating that it did. And that is is what I have to say about O Caledonia. Cool. The thing you just said, does that also apply to Murakami? (laughs) Yes. Um, I can't let it go. Yeah, with Murakami, it was like, he's also just really weird. Yeah, I wasn't as in engaged with that one like I didn't oh, like I didn't gotcha. like what I was reading as much I gotcha I, I gotcha. kept turning pages because I wanted an answer but sometimes I was like I I don't like what's on this page gotcha so that makes sense well I'm glad you had a fun experience with it yeah I'm glad that I finally like you know I liked a book that you <laughs> Woo, yeah <we're> here <laughs> yeah this is my highest rating so far yeah. and like I had fun preparing oh, this good. like yeah I've had fun I you did a really good job describing gothic literature yeah so. and I think it definitely is that is one of the things that it is tell me the it's other a, things that it is so it's a, it's a lot of things um it draws on obviously the gothic style but it also draws on like classical myths mm-hmm. um like she Greek, worships like Roman. Greek gods. Right. It draws on traditional Scottish uh, literature, which I am not as familiar with. I only know that from reading other people that are, but I know it draws on that. It draws on nature literature, um, which there's actually, there's a whole 
you know, study, it's called eco-criticism, where you read literature through the lens of, like, what it's saying about nature and what I've it's doing. I've never heard of this. Yes. There's a really cool article. I will put it in the show notes. Uh, it's called it's called Noir for the Anthropocene on Elspeth Barker's O Caledonia. Oh. And it's all about the role of animals in this book and how this book doesn't actually start with one corpse. It starts with two. Two, because there's her bird that kills itself out of grief. There are lots of dead animals in this book, which is yes. also pretty gothic. Um, so, like, there's a whole lens you can read this through with eco-criticism, which is not my forte, but yeah. definitely there. She also draws on Shakespeare a whole lot. And then I think the other genre that it is, besides gothic, besides literary fiction, is the coming-of-age novel. Yeah. But again, it's a riff on that, because it's more like... A coming of death. <laughs> I, I came of age and died. Right. That's, yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, so it's doing a lot of things. And this was one of those books. I told Brandon after I finished it, you read it for the sentences, not yeah. the story. Yeah. Um, which is why I wasn't sure if you'd like it or not. Um, I, I did get really into like... I mean, the paragraphs that I read, I didn't even know if I was going to like this book when I picked those. But I was like, that's a good paragraph, though. Like, yeah. you got to you got to say it's that's so a good paragraph. Good. Like, I just and usually even when I'm reading a book for class, I'll read it once to just like read and enjoy and get the gist. And then I'll go back and be like, OK, where do I see the symbolism and where I was picking up like motifs and recurring symbols first read like birds. Yeah. Big blood. So many things are described. Like, there's one point where she describes the highlands as, like, being drenched in blood, but it's beautiful to mm-hmm. her, which that's usually, it was, I noted it because it's, drenched in blood is not normally a thing you describe something as right. being beautiful. Um, I like everything drenched in blood. Yeah, but following, like, I would love to just read this and follow every time, like, blood or the color red is mentioned. Yeah. So cool. Um, It was, like, I don't want to say heavy-handed because heavy-handed kind of, like, leans to, like, I didn't like it, but it was not subtle in its symbolism no it was no. subtle in its like gothicness but like it was very like overtly here's a motif yes here's a symbol i think it just did it gracefully yeah it wasn't clunky. but not in a way where i was like okay yes there is so you already read the one passage that i love <laughs> um the other one is when she goes to the beauty salon with her mom. <laughs> like, so talking about coming of age, you know, her mom, there's, it's really kind of sad and tragic. Like for a minute, her mom's like, oh, she's finally becoming a lady and we can relate. And she like redecorates her room while she's away at boarding school. And it, of course, doesn't take. Yeah. And even Lila, or not Lila, even Janet's aware of this and like it kind of makes her sad. She's like, mm, I'm not the girl my mom wants yeah. me to be. But so I dubbed this her hellish entrance into womanhood. (laughs) And I also wrote, what a superb paragraph. (laughs) Um, The salon reminded Janet of the lunatic asylum. And this is the one Lila was in. Mm -hmm. People came in looking normal and cheerful. They were ushered by white-coated, unctuous attendants into a neon-lit inner torture chamber of throbbing machines. There they sat, gowned and scarlet-faced. And in no time at all... They had lost their identity. Their features had lapsed and swollen in the intense heat. Their hair bristled with small metal daggers on the, or their scalps were packed with wiry cylinders. Glassy-eyed, they gazed into the mirrors. Hope ebbed from the day. <laughs> the place reeked of sulfur and brimstone like hell. As Janet swathed in billowing pink nylon followed Monsieur André down the gleaming corridor, she glimpsed her fearful reflection. To what green altar, O oh mysterious priest, leads thou that heifer lowing at the skies? 
She's quote, <laughs> she's quoting poetry to herself. Right. Well, she knew the name of that altar, the dim, blood-boltered altar of womanhood. Uh, <laughs> like, so I, she's really excited to have her hair done. It's like, what a paragraph. That is great. And is it dramatic? Yes. Yeah, like, like I was going to say, go back to what makes things dra- fraught emotion. Like, fraught. It's a little much. I get it, but oh, Janet. Man. <laughs> like, it's, like, beautifully written and also just makes me chuckle so much. Right. And there is so much dark humor. I started tracking that, too. Yeah. Even in the first chapter when the gossips in town are like, oh, well, nobody's sad. Janet's dead. <laughs> like, and her parents, like, they can't get her buried on their family plot in such short notice. And they're like, well, at least she won't, like, bother us in death. <laughs> it's like, oh, no. I remember that. They were like, well, she... She would want to haunt us, so it's good that she's not so close by. There's so many dark humor moments. Like, there's one where Janet misunderstands when her mom says to bring the baby inside. Her baby sister. She meant to, like... She the baby was already in the stroller, the pram. Yeah. Push it inside. Nope. She drags the baby out of the pram <laughs> by its neck. Drags her on the ground. Right. Um the end of chapter two, she like is done with her family. They're all at the seaside. And so she goes off on her own to sit and eat her lunch and she finds this really nice slick oh, rock. No. It's not a rock. It's a dead seal. <laughs> and she realizes it. And yeah, it, she's like, this rock stinks a little bit. She stands up, she's like, I've been sitting on a dead seal eating my lunch. It's like, oh great. Yeah. They're like on their way to town and her sister falls out of the falls car. Falls out of the car. I'm <laughs> like, how does someone fall out of a car? I mean, this is uh yeah. This is a fun quote. Um St. Uncumba's is the boarding school she goes to. Fortunately, at St. Uncumba's, Halloween was not celebrated, for it was an evil pagan ritual. Instead, they lit an enormous bonfire on Guy Fawkes' night and burned a human effigy. I loved that, too! <laughs> I was like, okay, yeah. Like, this is so sassy. <laughs> so all the dark humor, super fun. I also really liked the early chapters when she was a child. Mm-hmm. I, so I have toddlers and I've read books now and thinking about the way children think. And I feel like she makes it so clear. Like the reasons adults will punish kids is not like the the child's thought process is not what you think it is because they yeah. don't think like an adult. They think like a child. Yeah. And, and so she you can just see how she just gets unfairly punished and unfairly punished. And it was so sad. But also, I think Barker really portrayed that like time of childhood very well yeah it just made it more poignant more sad but like also it was funny at times i mean i loved all the themes of just isolation like she she moves from being isolated in her childhood because nobody understands her they keep giving her dolls she doesn't want a doll she wants the donkey in the (laughs) shop window and then when somebody gives it to her new baby sister. sister and everybody thinks she's just being selfish but she's like i don't want these dolls anyway that made me sad yeah. She goes from isolation of childhood to the isolation of being a girl in an all-boys school. Well, that's fun. Um, and then the isolation of being a smart girl in the all-girls boarding school that she then leaves home and goes to. Like, so it's just moving from isolation to isolation, never really finding her place. This quote, she seemed to lack some essential quality of girlishness. She thought that she had never been a young girl, never would be, <laughs> which is like funny and then also sad because yeah. like, we use the term old soul, like, oh, they're an old soul. But it's like, it made me reevaluate how we, like, maybe they just don't feel like they fit with the paradigm you have of girlhood or boyhood or childhood. Like, yeah. they have their own wants and needs. Um, so I really enjoyed just that. I think there's a lot to explore there thematically. 
even though she is kind of funny at times. I mean, there's things about religion, the manatee that gets brought up. Yeah. And then, like, the big old woman in the insane asylum that's sitting in the chair like a manatee. It's yeah. almost like a symbol for the outsider. I don't know. This is not a well-developed thought. I just, <laughs> these are all the things I noticed on the first reading. But it was a book where, as soon as I finished it, I immediately wanted to read it again. Yeah. I, you would catch a lot in it the second time, too. Yeah. And just because I mentioned earlier lots of dead animals, there's not, like killing of animals or anything oh, no. but like the dead walrus or whatever manatee ma- that she sits on oh this i the think that's seal. a seal yeah so there's like a dead seal it was dead when she got there uh, like <laughs> yep. a cat dies of old age a frog you know gets run over by a bicycle i think yep. uh, the her bird which is like Aww. essentially a crow like yeah kills itself in mourning but like there's just dead animal after dead animal but no like it's not like Mirakami where a cat gets its head sawed off. No, you don't <laughs> see that. The worst is the gardener that skins the rabbits. Yeah. Which, oh, that was cool. Oh, yeah, dead rabbits. That's not cool. Sorry. That <laughs> that eco-criticism article I read, she calls them a certain type of rabbit. Mm-hmm. And the type of rabbit that it is, is so, I guess, at that time in Scotland, people had introduced this, like, bacteria to rabbits because they were overbreeding so mm-hmm. to, like kill off the population but then it stopped killing rabbits it just started making them sick oh so the rabbits the gardener was killing were actually those rabbits so even though it seemed like this like gross thing he was doing he was also doing an act of mercy which interesting you could go down that again that whole ah. eco criticism route of like a human's relationship with nature there's just so much to talk about yeah we're just only going to scratch the surface but i do have to tell you about the author tell me Okay, do you know anything about her? Nothing at all. Well, you read the introduction, so I guess... I mean, I know the tiny bit that's in the introduction. You know, so this was her only novel. Okay. She ever published. She published it in 1991. So it's not actually as old as I originally thought it was. Yeah, I would have guessed that it was older. Nope. So she, like Janet, was brought up uh, in a Scottish castle and attended an all-boys prep school that her parents ran. They were both teachers. Oh. So there is some, like, semi-autobiographical stuff in here. But she, you know escaped, unlike Janet, Mm -hmm. and she ended up uh, reading modern languages at Oxford. However, she never got her degree because she fell asleep in her final exam. And uh, her dad, unbeknownst to her, convinced the principal to let her sit the exam again. But she didn't know that, and so she went out of town that weekend to a friend's wedding. (laughs) So she never got her degree from Oxford. Sorry, Elspeth. Go to Oxford. Uh, like, it's not a community college. You went to Oxford, yeah. and you don't have the piece of paper that says, I went to Oxford. No, um, but she, so that set her up later. She later became a, te- uh, she became a teacher at an all-girls boarding school. Okay. So you can see where some of that comes into play in the novel. Um, but she, she taught in Norfolk after she met, when she was 22, she met George Barker, who was a poet. He was then 50. Had okay. 10 kids. Oh. They fell in love. They moved in together. They didn't get married till much later because his first wife was Catholic and wouldn't give him a divorce. Sure. So they didn't get married till 1989. But they moved to Norfolk. They lived in the 17th century farmhouse. That's where she taught at the all-girls school. She taught the classics. She wrote and produced plays with her students in Latin. So just like real... She eccentric. was very gothic. Like, she, she had a gothic She life. had a pet pig named Portia that would sometimes sit under the kitchen table... Um, oh, girl. She drank copiously. <laughs> she could have been a Lila in a like alternate timeline. So that's okay. One of the reviews, I can't remember if it was a review or um, her, the publisher of O Caledonia is the one who wrote her obituary oh. in The Guardian. She died last year. She oh. was 81. And she mentioned that, like, 
Janet is kind of like Elspeth's younger self, but Lila's a bit like her older mm-hmm. self. Mm-hmm. It's both mm-hmm. of herselves. Well, in at least there. she was self-critical. <laughs> she was with George until his death. Uh, she became a literary reviewer and critic. She was like a very well-known contributor to a lot of different British publications. And there's a book that compiles a lot of her work there, but this is the only novel. She was commissioned to write this novel by her daughter. Well, her daughter went to the publisher and said, my mom should write a novel. Here's some of her writing. And the publisher was like, yeah, this is good. Send me a novel. And the publisher said, like, it was practically perfect when she sent it to us. It needed no editing. It was great. Uh, Maggie O'Farrell actually worked for one of the publications that she wrote for. And where all the other people would send their work in, like, typed up or faxes. No, she would mail it in, handwritten. And of course. Maggie O'Farrell's job was to, like, type it out. And sometimes if she didn't, if she couldn't tell what it said, she'd have to call her up. Like, hey, Elspeth, um, what does this mean? And she said those were the highlight. Uh, as someone who just sent out, like, ten more query letters today. <laughs> I know. Like, I'm sorry. It was the 90s. It's fine. She's just such a fascinating character. She, like, like and, her life is very strange. Yes. A, a lot of it, I think, is in this book. When it came out in 1991, it was a great success. It won four different literary awards. She traveled on all these literary festivals, but then it went out of print after a few years. And in 2017, this gets quoted in all the reviews, Allie Smith said, this is the best least known novel of the 20th century. Yeah. So it got reprinted recently. That's the copy that I saw in Barnes & Noble over Thanksgiving break and I bought with Maggie O'Farrell's introduction. So it's having like, it's comeback, I guess. Yeah. But like I said, her publisher is the one who wrote her obituary. And there were two stories in it about her that I just have to share. (laughs) It's so funny. (laughs) She says, wild, beautiful, erudite, and very funny. Elspeth shone at every occasion. At a large dinner I hosted that year of publication, the year of publication of the book, in a Polish cafe in Hampstead, Joseph Brodsky and Clive James, long mutual admirers, had finally met. All evening they sat together quoting poetry to each other. Further down the table was Elspeth. Tiring of this male display of intellect and memory, she banged the table and to their astonishment began quoting poetry in Latin and ancient Greek. When she and I left, she flagged down a police car and persuaded the occupants to drive us home. Instead of getting a taxi, she just (laughs) hails the police. You, Bobby, come over here. Right. And then um, shortly after the publication of O Caledonia, George Barker died. He was much older than she was, right? Oh, they also had five kids, I should say. So he had 15 total? Mm -hmm. Oh, God bless. Yep. Okay, so shortly after publication, he died. Unaware of his recent death, John Carey wrote something slighting about his poetry in the Sunday Times. At the Sunday Times Christmas party in the Reform Club, Elspeth stormed in up to him and spat out a curse in rhyming couplets, ending with the words, Be wary, Carrie. <laughs> spat out a curse in rhyming couplets. <laughs> this woman is great. <laughs> like, oh, man. Can you imagine if she had been your teacher? I don't know if I would have loved or hated her. I would have loved her. I know you would have. But yeah, she's just... Oh, man. I was like, of course this is the woman that wrote this book. Yeah. Of course. I think Maggie O'Farrell calls it a literary phoenix. Because mm-hmm. it's the only one she wrote. This is all we have of her other than her like literary reviews and things she wrote for publications uh, in Great Britain. I found this book highly enjoyable. I'm glad you enjoyed some of it, too. I yeah. totally understand your critiques of it. Though. Yeah. I think I think those are fair. Yeah, but I, mm-hmm. I did enjoy it. Okay. I will say, not a whole lot of people have read this book as... I keep doing that to you. <laughs> and <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> even fewer people have reviewed it. <laughs> oh, so man. I had... 
there was not a lot to pick from. One That's of these fair. is even a two-star review because that there was That's not fair. a lot of quip to be found well, in the one-star review section. Of- we write our own, you know, we make our own rules. It's fine. Okay, so I have two low reviews. That's good. Yeah, the person's name is Stay. Stay. I, I, I get. I, I don't got know. confused. Okay, so this is Stay's review on Goodreads. Seven lonely days make one lonely week. Seven lonely nights I cried, cried for you. Oh, my darling, I'm crying, boo-hoo-hoo-hoo. My dark prayers have been answered, or so I thought. The cover cawed at me as if it was a crow in the deepest, darkest place in the forest, luring me into the dark depths of hell on earth. It promised me all the delicious darkness and fire of a gothic masterpiece, but it was just a tiny spark of a burnt-out lighter. (laughs) (laughs) This is great! (laughs) I was like, did Janet write this review? (laughs) I think so. (laughs) I just liked the overwrought emotion of this I, I enjoy a review that's written in the style of yeah, the book. I, yeah. I found some recently and sent to you. And yeah, those yes. are fun. Here's Regine. I didn't really feel anything for this book except for the bird. That's where I felt the most. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, poor Claws. C L A W S. Yeah. yeah. Um, Claws, Claws, the bird, is definitely gothic in my opinion. Oh, yeah. she he, His beak is broken Aww. and she nurses him back to life. And then. Let's him live in her dollhouse because it had no other use, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's like, it's a black bird that, like, to me is like a crow or a raven. I don't know what a jackdaw is, but, it, like... I don't either. Uh, I'm not a bird I'm person. not a bird person. I just kept it's calling it, like... Because of Poe, and, like, I was like, that's a raven. We're, we're <laughs> going to call more. We're going to call that a raven. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. That's where I felt the most. Yeah. <laughs> she was like, Fair I didn't enough. like it except for the bird. Fair enough. All right. That's good. Yeah, well, so that's fun. Oh, Caledonia. Yeah. Oh, I guess I get to tell you what you're reading next. You do. <laughs> I've already started it. It is a change of pace. You'll be reading Heroine by Mindy McGinnis. Okay. Is it YA? Yes. Okay, so it's our first YA that we... Oh, it is, yeah. Isn't it? Right. Yeah, yeah. we have not done YA yet. Okay. It's nice and short, so mm-hmm. at least there's that if you truly hate it. I am not going to say anything until next week because <laughs> okay. I already started it. And uh, yes, by heroin, I do not mean a hero. I'm, I mean the drug, the illegal drug. Right, heroin. yes, that's very clear when you look at the title. It's yeah. a book about um, drugs. So we're going to go from this to just uh, heroin. I mean, overwrought emotion. Yeah. Sure. An angsty teenager. Yeah. It's, it's not so much in common. <laughs> it's basically the same book. Don't yeah. even bother to listen yeah, to next week's episode. <laughs> okay. Thank you for listening to You Might Hate This Book. Join us again next week for more discussion of the books we love. And the books we hate. You can help others find this podcast by leaving us a review and five-star rating. And don't forget to hit subscribe. You can offer additional support and earn cool perks by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash hatethisbookpod. Special thanks to the Montague Workshop. See you next week. Yep. Listen, if reading books and being not that pretty, man, you didn't. Stop it.